And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome. Well, it's to another week, uh, halfway through the month of August. 103 degrees of temperature, and that is going to continue here in Texas for at least another week. It's expected between 103 and 105 degrees over the next week, right? No rain either. So, uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's hot. But you know what? It's summer, and it's August in Texas. So if you're not, if you've moved here recently from other states, going, I'm moving to Texas. Welcome. <laughs> This is August. It's not unusual. It's August. You don't uh, have to shovel this stuff off your driveway, though. Exactly. But you know, the only good thing is it's been so hot and dry, no mosquitoes. That's true. So that's yeah. been, you know, I've been out, you know, doing my runs on the weekends mm -hmm. and stuff. And yeah, it's hot, but you're not running from swarms of mosquitoes. So they that's go up. Like, <laughs> <I know, laughs> right? So they, and burn. they just burst into flames. Like as soon as they take <laughs> off, just like they're like fireflies. So <laughs> yeah, that was no lightning bug. That was exactly. a mosquito imploding. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so th see, there's an upside for everything. Yeah, it's hot. No mosquitoes. So, you know, we'll take, take what you get anyway, but we're getting close to it being over. We'll be in uh, September, October here very shortly. Things will start to cool down a bit. Thank goodness. Um, but also as we wrap up the month of August here over the next couple of weeks, we also really wrap up the vast majority of earnings season. And like we talked about last week, uh, the, 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 the majority of S&P 500 companies have reported earnings. Now we're going to start to kind of wind down. Uh, we still have uh, NVIDIA. That's one of the kind of the top 10 stocks that are driving the index this year. Uh, they report on the 23rd. So that's really kind of the last big company that's sitting out there that uh, markets going to be kind of paying attention to. Outside of that, markets are going to have to really kind of start to focus back on, well, you know, economic data. And then, of course, at the end of the month, we've got Jackson Hole coming up. And we'll talk about a little bit about that this morning, kind of expectations kind of all over the board about what Jerome Powell is going to say coming out of the Jackson Hole Summit meeting. Now, remember this time last year, uh, the Federal Reserve was really just kind of starting their rate hiking campaign. Inflation was really coming on back then, and already the markets were rallying in hopes the Fed was going to stop hiking rates. And that was where Jerome Powell said, hey, nah, some more pain is needed to get this under control. Uh, that sent the markets declining from August through October, and we had that ultimate low kind of set for the market in October. Now, again, ever since October lows, the markets have been rallying on the hopes that each Fed meeting is going to be the last rate hike. Of course, the Fed hiked rates at the last meeting to five and a quarter percent, roughly. And so, again, kind of the expectations, the hope now is, is this Jackson Hole Summit meeting will be kind of the one where he says we're done hiking rates, right? That's the hope. Um, I'm not sure that he'll say that. I'm sure he's going to kind of hint towards, and again, we'll talk about a little bit more uh, this morning, but, you know, kind of what the expectations are going forward for the Fed rate hikes and, and for the Fed, and more importantly, when they might actually start cutting, right? This is the big question is when ultimately is the Fed going to start cutting rates? We've we got to get back to zero interest rates. Um, you know, in order for this bull market to keep going. So, you know, all the bulls right now hoping for more rate cuts. The question is, is when would the Fed actually cut rates and what might be some of those uh, kind of the backdrops that would lead to those rate cuts? And kind of uh, there's three, three areas that kind of line up for that. We'll talk about that this morning. 
Um, you know, but again, that's going to be kind of a big focus here for this meeting. But that's really outside of that. Uh, we have the, the Jackson Hole Summit meeting and then we have inflation and employment following right after that. So again, we're getting, you know, kind of to this point of the year where, you know, we're going to be kind of having to kind of just really kind of focus on economic data uh, to move markets until we get into the third quarter earnings season, which again, that'll kick off in October. Uh, we'll start looking at the third quarter earnings season. And again, so far, earnings have been okay. There's been nothing to write home about about earnings. They're, they're all right. The one interesting thing, though, is, is that because inflation is falling, uh, profit margins have been under pressure. We are seeing, though, some kind of sequential improvement in profit margins as of this reporting cycle. So again, we're starting to see profit margins holding up here. They have come down a bit. Uh, but they are holding at a fairly high level relative to kind of history of where profit margins are. Uh, the question will be is can they continue as consumption and consumer spending begin to slow down? So those are going to be kind of the, the big questions to ask here over the next couple of months as we get ready for the next quarter earnings season. Okay, here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, markets came down on Friday and tested the 50-day moving average. Now remember, stepping back here a couple of weeks ago now, uh, we were talking about, hey, the market was very overbought, needed a correction. If we took out the 20-day moving average, the 50-day moving average was the most likely test. That was on Friday. Uh, markets came down, tested the 50-day moving average on Friday, bounced off of it. Uh, that's kind of the good news. So that first kind of initial test was positive in terms of the fact that we didn't close at or below that 50-day moving average, actually moved up a little bit off that low. Um, but again, markets remain on a fairly good sell signal. Now we're moving through that sell signal. This is the good news is that this correction, we're moving through that sell signal, so we're starting to work off some of that excess. Have a little bit more to go. Now, futures this morning pointing a little bit higher. So again, we're going to try to open up coming out of the gate. <clears throat> Whether or not we can hold on to those gains will be the question. Uh, markets are oversold here on a short-term basis, but not dramatically so. So again, it's seeing a little bit of a rally today, not surprising. But again, the question will now be between can the market hold this 50-day moving average, rally back to the 20-day, and then get above that? That would signal the end of this correctional process. That's a little bit early to kind of hope for that. The, the real question is, is do we rally to the 20, fail, and then retest the 50, or potentially go lower uh, on that? So do we get further correction here? Now, as we move into really September, you know, kind of this finish up August, September, October, these tend to be kind of a flat period for the market. So historically, what we've seen after the market has been up for five months in a row, which is what we just went through, and we were up more than 10% in the first half of the year, August, September, October tend to be fairly flat historically. So again, we kind of see market chop here for the next you know, two months, two and a half months, before we move into that November, December uh, kind of performance chase. Now again, a lot of portfolio managers kind of behind the curve this year. Uh, need to catch up on performance. So they'll be kind of loading up their, their ammo, so to speak, over the next month or so during this kind of pause in the markets that historically tends to happen on average. That doesn't mean it has to happen. Just historically looking back, after you've had a 10% gain in the first half of the year, you typically kind of get this flat to sideways market for a couple of months. Market kind of takes a pause. Then you get this performance chase in November, December to wrap up the year as all the portfolio managers trying to play catch up with their, with their allocations. But again, so again, you know, look for a bit of a rally here over the next couple of days. Markets again oversold enough here. 
What you were really looking for, of course, is for this, uh, moving, this uh, moving average sell signal to turn back into a buy signal. That would tell us that this correctional process is over. I don't expect that to happen right now. Again, seeing a bit of a rally here, another retest of the 50-day moving average, a bit more kind of consolidation and chop here over the next couple of weeks. That would be the best setup here for kind of an end of the year uh, kind of advance. But again, we still have that risk. If the market does take out this 50-day moving average, we still have that risk down to the 100-day moving average right around 4250-ish on the S&P. So again, there is some downside risk here. So again, continue to kind of maintain uh, your risk controls in your portfolio. Don't be super aggressive here. We'll get a better, a better feel uh, for when to start kind of more aggressively adding exposure to portfolios, but that's not right now. So again, be a little bit cautious. We've got some other stuff to get into this morning, but that's what you need to know before the bell. Coming back after the break, we'll come in and pick up with the Federal Reserve Jackson Hole coming up on, on at the end of this month, kind of some views about when they might actually start cutting rates. We'll talk about that. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, the middle of August, which means that the Jackson Hole Summit is fast approaching. Now, if you don't know what that is, every year uh, there is a convention, so to speak, of central bankers. It's the Central Banks Convention. <laughs> it's where they all get together and they all confab about global policy views and how to run our lives better and you know how to make sure to you know, manage our economy better. Um, you know, for the benefit of the of the wealthy and the elite. Uh, of course, you know that is completely tongue in cheek as I say that. Um, so, but that comes at the end of the month, and this is where, again, we're going to hear from a lot of the you know uh, the ECB. We'll hear from the IMF. We'll hear from you know a lot of you know kind of high profile economists. But the most important one obviously, is our own central bank. And we'll hear from Jerome Powell, who will talk about potential policy outlook. And again, the big question right now is when are they going to start cutting rates, right? We just can't have these high rates for long. And, and that's obviously a, a, a valid concern, right, because of all the debt and all the leverage. And, and again, as we continue to have high, in, high, high rates, high interest rates, that continues to impact uh, loans, credit, etc. And of course, credit is kind of the lifeblood of the economy. So, you know, everybody wants to know when the Fed's going to cut rates. And then for investors, they want to know when they're going to cut rates because that means more liquidity for the markets. Interest rates and valuations have a, have a tenuous relationship. And so lower rates supports higher valuations. That means I can continue to overpay for assets. So that's the, that's that's the hope, right? So what will what will do that? Um, so first of all, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what's expected from Jackson Hole and, and kind of the. There's a lot of views out there. Obviously, everybody has their own opinion. The consensus is basically is that we're not going to get a real strong monetary policy signal out of Jackson Hole. 
they're not going to come out this time. And again, you know, last year, this time, the markets were rallying uh, fairly strongly, actually. In fact, you know, in, in July of last year, we were talking about how the market had done a 50% retracement of the decline. Uh, historically, that signals kind of a return to the bull market and everything's great and everybody's hoping for the, the, the Fed to announce some rate cuts. Um, or at least that they were done hiking rates at the time. Of course, now we know that they were just really kind of getting started. Um, but, you know, that was when Jerome Powell came out and basically made his more pain as needed statement that squashed those hopes and the market sold off to the lows in October. So again, you know, we're looking at a market that's been rallying very strongly since October on hopes that the Fed is going to be closer to done than not. And we go from one meeting to the next. It's like, oh, my gosh, is this the, is this the meeting? Is this the meeting they're going to announce that they're done hiking rates? Well, last meeting, they hiked rates and did kind of give you that signal that, hey, we're going to start to kind of be more data dependent. We're going to kind of wait and see and see what the data says about whether or not we're going to hike rates further. Markets interpreted that as they're done. But they may not be. Kind of an interesting conundrum when it comes down to inflation is the fact that homeowners equivalent rent makes up about 40%-ish of the index. Rent as a function has been rising again as of late. So the question is, is will that feed into homeowners equivalent rent and will that start to push inflation rates up? If that does, then the Fed is probably not done hiking rates. But again, this is the hope. The hope, is, the hope from the markets is the Fed is done. So the base case is, is that we're not going to get a strong monetary policy signal out of Jackson Hole. Uh, do expect that they will skip the September meeting because of Jackson Hole. And they won't hike rates in September. But right after that, we're going to have the PCE inflation report. The, the employment data will come out um, right after that. And the market is already assigning a pretty low probability um, of a rate hike at this point. But again, depending if they are data dependent, if we start seeing PCE, if we start seeing CPI, et cetera, start to tick back up, um, that's going to change pretty quickly. The other kind of the, the, the question outside of the potential for hiking rates is really when will the Fed start cutting rates? And this is kind of a much more interesting question. And we've talked about this before because, again, there's why does, it, you know, we talk about, first of all, why does the Fed ultimately cut rates, right? That's, that's the real kind of initial question. The, the, the Fed cuts rates because you have an economic recession or some type of financial crisis, some type of event. But the reality is, is that there's another reason the Fed could cut rates, and this is going to be the big conundrum for the markets because, again, when we start talking about, you know, Fed rate hikes and, and these type of things, there's a, a couple of factors that feed into this, of course, that we have to be aware of. So, first of all, why, why would the Fed cut rates? They would cut rates because you have a recession. Okay? You have to leave this chart up for a second, Brent. So this, so we have a chart up right now, which is a chart from Goldman Sachs, which is effectively called, it's what we talk about here on the show quite a bit. It's called the real Fed funds rate. This is inflation-adjusted Fed funds. 
the Fed will cut rates when Fed funds, real Fed funds, begins to approach zero or, or become negative. And, you know, this is why back in 2007, the Fed was cutting rates. And, and again, they kept rates very low towards zero. Um, every time we tried to hike rates, like in 2018, they immediately had to reverse rate, uh, rate, uh, rate hikes again. Because as soon as real Fed funds rates started to get below zero, it became problematic for the economy. And this is kind of where we're, we're getting to now. And what Goldman Sachs is making a case for, he says, our baseline forecast calls for rate cuts without a recession. Because once inflation comes down, the Fed funds rate will not need to remain high relative to recent history. And the Fed will want to get those, that kind of that real Fed, Fed funds rate back down towards neutral. Okay. So that's, that's kind of a, a, an interesting take when you start talking about why the Fed will cut rates. So first is obviously a recession. They're going to cut rates to, to lower borrowing costs towards zero to get people active in the economy to start borrowing money. Or you have some type of financial crisis event, right? So you have the, you know, the banks you know, on the ropes for, for one reason. And we just saw this back in March, right? Um, had a lot of banks. The you know, interest rates have gone up. Collateral values have gone down, so had some banks on the ropes, Silicon Valley Bank, others. And so the Fed had to come in and provide an emergency kind of vehicle to keep the banks solvent, even though our banks are well capitalized because they keep passing all their stress tests, but that's a different story. Um, <clears throat> so if there's a problem with the banks, obviously the Fed's going to cut rates. And now there's this third kind of idea here that the fed will cut rates when inflation comes back down towards their target because they'll want to keep this the real fed funds rate near neutral right to keep the pressure off the economy so we'll see kind of what that you know how that kind of plays out you know the, the real risk still still tends to be you know a recession or some type of, of financial event and I, and I think it's interesting right now because interest rates have been moving up here recently because of the inflation reports You've got mortgage rates back to the highest level in 22 years. And, of course, that's going to impact mortgages and refinancing and that type of stuff in the real estate business. High interest rates obviously you know, impact borrowing costs for, for businesses and, and, more importantly, refinancing costs. So as debt comes to maturity and those, those previous debts that were issued out at very low rates have to be refinanced at high rates, that's a problem for, for businesses. And of course, just high high rates impact you know kind of the the global operation of the economy, right? Because credit card rates go up, etc. Car rates, etc. All that goes up. So again, all that impacts consumption. And it's interesting right now because as interest rates go up, and we have this very heavily indebted society, you know, there's people there's people out there making calls for oh, interest rates have because of all the debt, interest rates have to go to five, six, seven percent on the 10-year treasury. And that makes no sense whatsoever because if you're already having trouble at four, you're going to be in a depression at five <laughs> because simply the economy just can't withstand higher rates. So again, once rates start to get to the point that they are impacting economic activity and particularly more importantly than anything else, that they begin to impact credit and the credit markets, 
and the functioning and operation of those credit markets. And you have to think about all the different type of instruments that are tied towards interest rates. You know, there's all kinds of derivatives and, you know, just about everything you can imagine out there that are all tied to interest rates. So if interest rates reach that point that you start, you know, kind of buckling the derivative market, which is far larger than, you know, the, the equities market, you got problems. So, again, don't think for a moment the Fed's not going to cut rates. They're, the Fed's going to need a reason to cut rates. The only question is when do they do it to get interest rates back down again? And again, this is just a, a function of the amount of leverage that we have in the economy. So for call, these calls for extremely higher interest rates are based upon a normally functioning bond market that's not driven by central banks. We don't live in that world anymore. All right, quick break. We'll come back. Get some other stuff going this morning as well as we uh, kick off this brand new week. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so uh funny story Saturday night, uh, so all, everybody's out of the house, just me and my wife. And uh, so my wife loves to watch scary movies. It's just her thing. So she loves a good horror movie. And no, okay, first of all, let's just be clear: there's no good horror movies, right? There, but in the realm of horror movies, as as they go, there's some that are better than others. Anyway, so we're right. We're, we're watching this one this weekend, and and uh, you know, lights are off, and we're you know, sit in the living room watching the scary movie. And, of course, you know, the music's getting all tense, and it's this, you know, this one scene where, you know, just you know that somebody's just about to get, you know, slashed. And, and you know, so the mu music's starting to build up, and it's, you know, just this very tense moment. All of a sudden, we hear this noise. Boom! And it just, both of us just go jumping out of our seats and the dogs are start barking and they run over to the fireplace and they're barking at the fireplace and I'm like what the hell is going on with this and apparently a raccoon fell down our chimney <laughs> and is now trapped in my fireplace and so I've got to have a pest removal uh, what not, not pest removal um, yeah. the, the way they come out they're, they're gonna rescue him today so I have a, a raccoon prisoner in my house right now <laughs> that I'm holding for ransom. <laughs> I'm, hold, I'm holding this raccoon for ransom. I, you know, I'm waiting for the parents to show up. But anyway, um, 
we'll see what happens. But anyway, so this morning after the show, I've got to go home and free a raccoon. So, <laughs> no, I haven't named him yet. But uh, my dogs have spent all day Sunday in the fireplace. They will not leave the fireplace. They are. They just want to stand there and stare at the because the flu is shut because yeah. it's summer, right? Yeah. So, the raccoon is sitting on top of the flu, and, and so he can hear him moving around in there and i i did kind of open it to see i opened it to see what was in there and i saw a little raccoon hand stick over the edge i was like nope <laughs> you're staying in there <laughs> so yeah i could only imagine open that flu that raccoon comes flying out into my living room with two dogs and my wife this is not going to work out well for the for the raccoon or me i have a feeling so <laughs> exactly so yeah it's going to be He'll get rescued today. I'll I'll give you the update tomorrow to his uh Brocky's <laughs> uh, health will be okay tomorrow. But I'm sure he'll be fine. Um anyway, that was my weekend. Other than it being hot, that was my weekend. So uh talking a little bit about so so we kind of just talked a little bit about, you know, the the market and and you know, uh the Federal Reserve and now kind of focusing on kind of this what happens next uh, again with Jackson Hole coming up this weekend that's going to be kind of the uh, sorry with Jackson Hole coming up at the end of this month that's going to be kind of the big thing but again it's just you know the markets are hinging on right now kind of what the Fed does and since the Fed is now data dependent the markets are now drifting from one economic report to the next which and let's be honest for a second right most of these economic reports a are guesses at best, because we don't have the data to any great degree. I mean, you know, think about the employment report is a good example. On the second Tuesday, on, on the first Tuesday of each month, the BLS calls 60,000 households and asks, yeah, are, you, are you working? And, of course, there's some guy sitting around with 12 pizza boxes on the floor in his underwear, hasn't worked in four months, but he's like, yeah, I'm working and I'm full-time self-employed. Whatever. So they take that 60,000 households and then they extrapolate that data collection to represent 330 million Americans. I mean, just how accurate are you going to be with that type of math? You know, it's, it's, it's a shot, but we, we hold this, these reports as if they're gospel. It's like, oh, that that's that was an exact count. That's not. These are these are these are statistical samplings. They are guesses at best. And then of course we take these guesses and then we apply a whole lot more guesses to them, like the birth death adjustment. You know, I, I think some people went out and started a business last month and they hired, you know, a couple of people. We don't know. But we take these things as gospel and we say, okay, that's we're we're gonna, you know, the, the employment is, is super strong, right? So that means the economy's doing great. You know, then a year from now we do the revisions and we find out that, well, the, the numbers weren't all that great. And we find out this is what was going on. But again, it doesn't matter. By the time we get to the revision data, we don't really care anymore, right? Because we're we're focused on what's happening then. But but again, you know, we we base a lot of our investment, you know kind of rationale on these month-to-month numbers that really have very little near-term meaning. And again, as we've talked about before, what's important with economic data is not the data, right? Um, 
189,000 jobs created last month. Okay, great. What does that mean in isolation? Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. And, and A, it's a guess, but B, it doesn't really mean, the number doesn't mean anything. Yes, we created some jobs. But the question now is, is did we create jobs or are we just putting people back to work after shutting down the entire economy? Are we really absorbing the population increase that has occurred when we had shut the economy down? But more important than just the number is the trend of the day. We've talked about this before. If the number is going from 9% to 8 to 7 to 6, we go, oh, the economy is still doing fine, right? We're still in a positive number, but the trend is very clear that the economy is slowing down. To 5, to 4, to 3, to 2, to 1, to 0, and it's like, oh my gosh, we're at 0. Oh, we're at negative 1. Oh, now we're in a recession. No, we've known that was coming for months because all you do is pay attention to the trend of the data. So again, when you take a look at this economic data, we've really got to step back, you know, away from this kind of immediacy of the number. And again, you know, whenever we get an inflation number out or we get a an employment data point out, or like, you know, the media just, you know, jumps all over this this one particular data point. What's it telling you, right? What's the trend of the data? Is it improving? Is it is it weakening? What's it doing? Because that tells you a lot more about where we're headed. You know. Where we are is much less important than where we were. But again, it's just it's not the way that we really kind of look at things. But when it comes to investing, understanding these trends are a lot more important. And, and look, and there's there's some clear improvement in some of these economic trends. Sentiment, as an example, is improving. Not just over the last month, but over the last several months. Sentiment, consumer sentiment has been improving. Consumers are feeling better about where inflation is headed. Not surprising. Inflation has been coming down, right? The trend of inflation over the last several months since June of last year has been declining. Here we are a year later and, you know, inflation's heading towards 3%, down from 9 So, sure, consumers feel a lot better about where inflation is. Inflation for what consumers spend money on every day is about 1.2% over the last month. Certainly has come down. They certainly feel better. Their, their dollar that they're spending is going further at the grocery store. It's going further, but they're buying less stuff because of shrinkflation, right? You're still, you're still getting four less Oreos in every bag. I counted. I didn't, but you get the point. But, you're, but, but nonetheless, prices are coming down. The dollar is going further for them, so they feel better. The pressure is easing up on the household, so they're feeling better about things. They're not as negative as they were. So that's being reflected in consumer sentiment. Business sentiment has also improved some. Not a lot, but small business sentiment has improved, and that improvement in small business sentiment has been reflected in small cap mid cap stock prices which are rising there's a very high correlation to that we just wrote about that recently in our article last week and so you're seeing this improvement in some of the data and we need to pay attention to that because that helps support kind of this more bullish outlook going forward at least in the near term 
until or when such time occurs that that inflation that that data begins to reverse. And again, as we said a second ago in the last segment talking about inflation, we're seeing rents starting to increase some here. If that rental income feeds in, which does feed into homeowners equivalent rent, if, if that begins to increase markedly, that is going to feed into inflation, which will push inflation higher. Because, again, homeowners equivalent rent is a very significant chunk of CPI. So as rents increase, that is going to feed into that CPI calculation. And, of course, oil prices are up. Uh, we're seeing, you know, some other areas of the economy starting to show some signs of, of kind of, you know, a pickup in prices, so to speak. Not large degrees, right? We're not seeing them just spike through the roof, but we are seeing some increases that are going to feed back into inflation. And so if inflation starts to improve again, or starts, inflation starts to increase again, then that improvement and some of these sentiment indicators are going to reverse, right? And that could put pressure on markets. So again, it's the trend of the data we want to pay attention to. Not the numbers, the trend. All right, right back after the break. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com welcome back to the show this morning you know we talk a lot about you know income inequality and talk a lot about wealth inequality and Things like that. And, and of course, you know, it's it's easy to blame the rich folk, right? Because they have all the money. I don't have anything. And, you know, we always need somebody to kind of pick on. But, you know, at some point we have to start looking at what we do individually to our own finances. Right? It's like people that are... Have you ever met people that have a kind of a victim attitude? And they're always self-sabotaging themselves, but it's always somebody else's fault. And, you know, you know, if you would just stop doing that and start focusing on, you know, moving forward um, and taking responsibility for your actions, you're going to wind up doing better. Well, it's the same thing with, with finances in a lot of cases that we self-sabotage ourselves. And we do things because it's not our fault that we have to do this, Right. Somebody else did this to me. The rich people did this to me. The you know the corporate America, whatever the excuse is, and so we want to, and ultimately we wind up blaming you know capitalism's broken because it's unfair, and so we go through all this. But really, when we really get down to the crux of things, in most instances, the reasons that we're not building wealth is because we're not doing the things we need to do to, to build wealth, and 
we're the victims of our own bad choices. And I thought this was interesting in the and because we talk about, you know, quite often here about 401k plans. And 401k plans are a disaster. They were they were a great idea in the beginning. The idea of them was great until they weren't. And 401k plans have, have really become a disaster for many Americans for a variety of reasons and not because of, you know, corporatism or anything other. It's, it's really our own bad decisions, right? Um, you know, we go back through the statistics of 401k plans that we've talked about here on the show before. Out of all the working Americans that are out there, only about 50% have access to a 401k plan. Out of that 50%, only 50% actually even contribute to them. Of the 50% that actually contribute to them, a large chunk of them barely put in enough to get the match. And, and the reason, of course, is like, well, you know, I've got to have that money at home. i got to pay bills. I can't afford to put that much away, blah, blah, blah. Get it. But this is why when we take a look at the average 401k balance, it's about one year's worth of the average income, about $65,000. Now, how are you going to retire on that? You know, every year Fidelity comes out with their 401k millionaires and they go, this year we had a record number of 401k millionaires. These are people that have more than a million dollars in their 401k plan. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Until you look at the percentage. It's 1% of all the 401ks they manage. Not surprising. And again, the function comes down to the fact that there are about 1%, 2%, 3% of the population that are very focused upon their financial situation, right? We talk about the millionaire next door, the guy that lives in a very modest home. He drives an old pickup truck, mows his own yard, paints his own house, does his own plumbing, right? You know, whatever. And has over a million dollars in the bank because he just saves, right? He saves and he invests and he saves and he invests and he just lives well below his means, but that's a very, very small number of Americans. And the reason I bring all this up is it's the number of, this is from Yahoo Finance this morning, the number of workers looting their retirement savings is escalating. In the second quarter, the tally of folks taking hardship withdrawals from the 401k was up 12% compared to the first three months of the year and left 36% on a year-over-year basis, according to a new survey from Bank of America. That tracks about 4 million clients' employee benefit programs. Borrowing from uh, retirement savings was also up. The percentage of 401k participants who got a loan from their workplace plan uh, in the second quarter was up 2.5% from 1.9% first three months of the year. By the way, I get people email me all the time. It's like, hey, I can borrow from my 401k plan. It's super cheap, and I pay myself back. No, it's not super cheap. And no, you're not paying yourself back. There's one rule of your 401k plan. Never, ever, ever, never, 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 ever, never, never, never borrow from your 401k plan. Period. End of story. You don't have a reason to borrow from your 401k plan ever. Bottom line is you're borrowing pre-tax dollars to pay them back with post-tax dollars. It makes no sense whatsoever. That interest rate is astronomical. There's a whole other 
bevy of reasons I've written about in the past on not to borrow from 401k plans, but just trust me, don't do it. Second thing is, is that the government keeps coming up with all kinds of new rules as of late. And we've, we've, you know, since the 2020 shutdown, the government keeps coming up with new ways to let you rob your 401k plans. Don't do it. Figure it out somewhere else. Cut back at home, figure it out, get a second job, sell everything that doesn't is not nailed down, rent your kids out to mow lawns for the weekend, you know, whatever it is. Don't borrow, don't take money out of your 401k plan. That is all you have for retirement in most cases. But the government keeps making it easier for you because they want your tax dollars, right? They want those, those pre-tax dollars that are going to your 401k plan, they want those dollars now. So, hey, sure, take it out, pay that tax. We're good. They need tax revenue, but don't do it. And again, you know, this is that, you know, tough lesson, right, that we have to deal with. But at some point, we've got to look at ourselves and say, why am I consistently in this position where I cannot save money? Why am I consistently in a position where I cannot set money aside for my retirement? You know, if you have a 401k plan at work, you should be maxing you should be maxing that annual contribution every year. You get a catch up when you're over the age of 55 and so make sure you're doing the catch up as well. But that should be coming right out of your paycheck right up front. Then you should be setting aside money for savings in an investment account, right? Um, vacation money, whatever it is. And you're living on the balance. You should be saving 30% of your income. And see, that's just where people go, well, I just can't do that. Well, why can't you? Well, there's this reason and that reason, this other reason, and this reason over here, and that reason and that reason. Are those reasons or excuses? Look, I know I'm being tough on you right now. And so I'm, I'm, everybody's situation is different. My point is simply this. If you want to build wealth, there's two ways to build wealth. You either start a business, grow it, and sell it which is how the vast majority of wealth is created in the country. Or you do the second, which is to save your way to wealth. Not Now, notice, I didn't say invest. Investing helps keep your savings adjusted for the purchasing power parity in the future. So you should invest conservatively to grow your savings to adjust for the rate of long-term average inflation, which is about 2.3%. Once you begin taking more risk than that, you subject yourself to losses. And again, when you start losing capital, you've got to spend a lot of time trying to make that up. That just compounds the problem of building wealth. So preservation of capital is more important than anything else. There's the old saying on Wall Street, which is, I'm more focused on the return of my capital rather than the return on my capital. And that's a true statement. But if I'm not going to start a business, grow it, and sell it to build wealth, then I'm going to have to save my way to, to wealth and then invest conservatively to make sure those savings are, are, are adjusting for inflation and, and, wealth over, and growth over time. It's doable. You know, if you take a look at, you know, people like Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett and others, very wealthy people. They didn't start out that way. They're very wealthy now. 
they built a business. They use other people's money to invest that they create profits from. You can do the same thing. See, there's nothing stopping us from going out and starting a business. That's the beautiful thing about capitalism. There is no barrier to entry. Every day on the Internet, I see all kinds of you know, people on social media hawking some product that they came up with, right? Or they're selling other people's product. They put a twist on whatever it is. But there's people out there every day taking advantage of, of capitalism to start growing a business. And, and that's a great way to build an income stream. But you can do it with real estate. You know, you can do it with investing. You can do it in a, in a variety of ways. You can build a profitable business or you can save and invest your way to wealth, too. But it, it requires discipline. And, and the first thing that you've got to do in order to do this is stop making bad mistakes. And that is like borrowing from your 401k plan. But Lance, I had this problem and I had to fix it and I needed money. And the only place I had it was my 401k plan. Excuse or actual reason? Now, look, there's actual reasons. Don't get me wrong. Wife is in the hospital, whatever it is, right? There are certainly emergencies that require us to tap capital at a time that we shouldn't have to want to do it. But the vast majority of reasons that we tap capital are excuses, not reasons. So again, stop making bad decisions. Start making better decisions. And like my like my health coach always said, is like, look. You don't, if you want to go on a diet, right, you don't have to stop eating a hamburger altogether. Just make better bad decisions over time, and you'll do better. So let's just start making better bad investment decisions, <laughs> and we'll do better over time. Anyway, all right. Wraps up the show for today. Be back tomorrow. Uh, we'll get into our article for tomorrow, which is uh, why bonds may now be the very best opportunity they've been in a long time. We'll talk about that tomorrow right here on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you then.